At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, Executive Director of the Commonwealth Policy Center. According to a 2020 overdose fatality report by the Kentucky Office of Drug Control Policy, at least 1,964 Kentuckians died from a drug overdose in 2020. That is a 49% increase of deaths from the previous year. So Kentucky is clearly in the throes of a drug addiction crisis. Uh, It's impacted our families. It's negatively impacted our communities and also our workforce. So where do we begin to stem this addiction crisis? Joining me on today's Commonwealth Matters program is Gene Dethridge, Outreach and Engagement Specialist with the Fletcher Group. Gene, welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. Richard, thank you for having me here today. Hey, uh, I had a chance to really just became aware of your organization uh, not too long ago, and I had a chance to look at your website uh, about what the Fletcher Group does. And uh, I think we'll start with the mission statement, and it says that the Fletcher Group uh, researches and promotes effective practices and public policy to improve health and wealth well-being with a focus on addictive and lifestyle diseases, including substance abuse disorders and other chronic lifestyle diseases. Um, tell us, if you would, about some of the effective practices that you have been uh, promoting. And I guess you've, you've been around just since 2017. Is that correct? Yes. So I formally joined the Fletcher Group in 2019, but my professional career in working with substance use disorder goes back to 2015. Great. So what are some of those effective practices and public policies that you have promoted and implemented? You know, we uh, drug addiction and um, the crisis that we've been in, this is not new. That we, Kentucky has struggled with addiction for really for decades. I think we're seeing it uh, maybe come to a, a, a new level of addiction and a new level of uh, seriousness with the opioid crisis, uh, the opioid uh, epidemic is, it seems, less forgiving than the others. It's, uh, opioids are highly addictive, uh, and they're extremely dangerous. Um, so hence the, the, the record number of deaths in the Commonwealth uh, in 2020. I mean, nearly 2,000 Kentuckians lost their lives from drug overdose deaths. I believe a majority of those are from opioid, uh, opioid substance abuse. Um, so what are you doing at the, at the Fletcher Group to, um, to promote effective practices and public policies to address this? Yes, so absolutely. Um, Of course, Governor Fletcher has been intimately involved with the substance use disorder issue and in the early stages of the crisis, going back to his administration when he was governor of the state. And during that time, he started the Recovery Kentucky programs which uh, there are 18 facilities across the state of Kentucky that use a unique blended funding model to provide high quality substance use disorder treatment 
to individuals in the Commonwealth free of charge. Um, and so that was how it started. And then the Fletcher Group was actually formed when Don Ball, uh, builder of Ball Homes, uh, approached Governor Fletcher and asked him to continue the mission that they had worked on together during his administration. And that was something Mr. Ball very much wanted to continue. And the Ball family was very generous and actually gave some seed money to our organization. We went on the, from there to acquire uh, three other grants. One was a grant from the Appalachian Regional Commission. Another was a grant from CORE, the Kentucky Opioid Response Effort. And the third grant, which I work under, is from the Health Resources Services Administration. Um, and so the core grant, one of the practices that we focused on there was the expansion of accessibility to medication assisted treatments, but inside a primary care setting. So if you recall, uh, during the beginnings of the opioid crisis, we had what were called the pill mills. And, you know, those were doctors that weren't necessarily acting ethically, and they would set up clinics from where they would distribute large amounts of prescription opioids under dubious circumstances at best. And so when medication-assisted treatments began to come out into the public as one method for treating opiate use disorders, there was a lot of pushback from that. So one thing that we found was that if you can situate medication-assisted treatment in a primary care setting where the individual is coming in and they're receiving care from a doctor, just like anyone else would in that primary care setting. And the other folks don't know why they're there and they don't know why the other folks are there. It really helps reduce stigma and increases the chances that folks are going to adhere to those treatment protocols. So was stigma something that uh, prevented people from getting the care that they needed if they had some kind of addiction issue? Were they afraid to go into a designated treatment center for fear of what people might think? Um, was that keeping them back? It's a huge issue and continues to be, especially in rural communities. Um, in rural communities across the country, you know, it's the small town thing. Everybody knows everybody's business. And so if you see Tom or Sally going to the Matt clinic, then you know what they're going there for. But if they're just coming to their primary care provider, they could be there for anything. Your focus is on providing that technical assistance to rural communities, um, in particular regarding safe, sustainable recovery housing. Tell us a little bit more about what that looks like. Yes, and so that really touches on the efforts that we have through the Appalachian Regional Commission, as well as HRSA. So ARC funded us to build uh, at least three new recovery programs, and what we're trying to do is to take the original success of the Recovery Kentucky model and add some additional resources at the front and back end, A, to increase uh, the chance that somebody's gonna stay in the program and finish it, and two, on the back end, that they're gonna have access to education resources and training so that they can successfully re-enter the workforce. Because we believe strongly that once someone completes a treatment event, then it's very important that they have meaningful employment to look forward to. 
And then the work that we do under the Rural Center of Excellence in Recovery Housing, which is the HRSA Award, we provide technical assistance across the country to any county that's designated rural by HRSA. And that technical assistance is robust from project planning to project management, helping folks figure out budgets, helping them implement evidence-based practices and implement the social model of recovery, which is what has made Recovery Kentucky so successful in its outcomes. Very good. So, so along those lines, Gene, what are some of the other elements that sets the Fletcher Group apart from other recovery initiatives? We know there are many different groups, there are many different models, and there's, of course, a need because we in Kentucky are in the midst of a, an, a drug abuse crisis. Really, Appalachia is in a crisis. Look, the entire country is. But what other elements sets the Fletcher Group apart um, in recovery initiatives? You're 100% right, Richard. Uh, you know, the Kentucky-based numbers are devastating. Nationally, it was 93,331 people. And I always say people that someone loved. Someone loved each one of those 93,331 folks. And when I first saw that report, I wrote that number on my heart to keep me going in this work. But so I, I believe what differentiates us from many other organizations is, as far as it goes, we're nonpartisan, which does play a role in the nonprofit and private substance use disorder treatment role. You know, we're free to provide our technical assistance to any nonprofit, any private organization, any local government, any state government that wants to engage us on bringing real solutions to this crisis. And the, the other two things that we focus on, we use a unique blended funding model to build what we call the capital stack to construct these large facilities because they're not, they're not ramshackle places. I mean, these are multi-million dollar facilities. They're very nice. They're modern. They're clean because we believe that being able to come into that environment itself helps the individual want to recover and be able to recover because they're not in some dingy basement. But so through that, we try to minimize as much as possible, sometimes up to having no debt on the property so that those organizations can focus on the operations and deliver long-term recovery housing services. And I like to put that in bold, long-term residential recovery services, because Normally, the only things your private insurers or public insurers will pay for are short-term stays, 30 days or less. And the neuroscience about substance use disorder is clear. You're looking at a minimum of 12 to 18 months before just the physical brain is going to be at baseline to then start pursuing some of those higher goals for somebody in recovery. Uh, I also noticed that uh, one of the elements that you have that does set you apart is uh, peer-driven support. So individuals who've gone through the treatment successfully are on hand to help others who are just beginning their journey. How does that look? It's, it's really amazing to watch. And, you know, most anybody can get a tour of one of the existing Recovery Kentucky programs. And so when an individual first starts the program, they start what's called SOS, which stands for safe off the streets. And then they're immediately greeted by someone that's called a peer mentor. And so that individual is anywhere between six and 12 months ahead of them in the program. 
but has literally been exactly where they are, may have slept in the same bed that they're in. And so with the support of staff, you know, they are able to intimate their lived experience with that individual and, and literally be a living, breathing, concrete example of hope for that person. And, and it's powerful. That's fantastic. Uh, so what kind of success uh, are you showing for those who've completed the program? What, uh, what's your success rate? With the Recovery Kentucky programs and all this uh, data is available to the public on the Kentucky Housing Corporation's website, um, it's approximately 62% across all the centers for individuals that enter and then go on to maintain a lifestyle of recovery at least one year after they've left the recovery program, which there's not a lot of study and data that's really ever been done about substance use disorder. It's really only became an item of national interest in the past decade or so. But, um, you know, two thirds doesn't sound like a lot, but I, I promise it is comparatively. Because you look, you look at the effort that we've put in over the past 60 years with the the criminal justice approach in which, you know, you, you punish an individual, they spend some time in prison, but then they walk out the door and they're right back in it or they overdose and they pass away. Um, and those numbers are uh, somewhere in the eighties. So like if, if you get arrested for possession of an opiate and then you're released within six months of that arrest, you have, about an 80% chance that you're going to have an overdose, possibly fatal. Gene, you are doing good work. Uh, we are out of time. Gene, God bless and uh, keep up the good work. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. It's clear that we're living in confusing and challenging times where law and culture are increasingly hostile to Christian values. So how do you maintain your faith and convictions? That's a question that we're helping to answer at our Christianity and Culture Conferences. The goal is to help believers to understand the culture and how to respond in an effective and winsome way. And we'd love for you to join us. The first two were well-received, and we look forward to seeing you at our fall conferences in Bowling Green, Paducah, and in Somerset. To find out more, go to CommonwealthPolicyCenter.org. That's CommonwealthPolicyCenter.org, and we look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, Executive Director of the Commonwealth Policy Center. Kentucky is at the center of the opioid crisis. There were nearly 2,000 overdose deaths in Kentucky in 2020, and the majority, around 70%, were related to opioid abuse. Why such dependency on illicit drugs? Why so many overdose deaths? Why Kentucky? Joining us on the Commonwealth Matters today is Mark LaPalm co-founder of Isaiah House. Mark, welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. Mark, I uh, uh, just met you, had a great meeting with you uh, a while back, and really was not fully aware of Isaiah House until you uh, and your wife filled me in on what you're doing. I've heard Isaiah House before, and I had a general idea of what y'all did but really had no idea as to your reach and to the scope and how many people you served. And um, I'd like for us to to talk a little bit about Isaiah House and, and what you're doing, but 
Um, of course, you, you, you deal with addiction issues, people who are in various um, throes of addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol. But tell us a little bit about Isaiah House. Give us a snapshot of, of what you do, and then I w- I'd like to hear how you got involved with this. So um, Isaiah House uh, today has um, a very uh, holistic model of, of treatment, and it was really something that was missing uh, in the days when I went through treatment, there were a lot of silos that were created in treatment. And so we have every level of care um, under a Christ-centered, uh, in a Christ-centered environment. Um, so that means that we have uh, medical doctors, we have nurses, nurse practitioners, master degree licensed therapists. We have roughly 30 of those that are on staff. We have 201 uh, residential beds today. Um, So today we had 201 people wake up in one of our facilities. And then we have another 145 transitional living beds. So we have to complement our residential setting, we have aftercare. And that aftercare has roughly 25 homes that we manage. And in those 25 homes, there's roughly another 145 people that woke up this morning in those beds. So in the treatment world, we have uh, withdrawal management or detox. We have uh, medication-assisted therapy, um, which can be anything from Vivitrol to Suboxone to comfort meds. Um, We have short-term residential treatment. We have mid-term residential treatment because not everybody wants to sign up for 11 months, Richard, when they first come into a treatment program. And so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll use that 28 day program to get them to start thinking correctly. And, and, and then what we see is soon they start saying, you know what, I need more, I need more than 28 days. So we've got a 28 day, a hundred day, and then an 11 month, we have what's called intensive outpatient. We have partial hospitalization, we have outpatient, and then we have transitional living. So it's one of the first, if not the first in the state of Kentucky that brought all of the components into one place. And and that removes silos, which makes it easier for people to have a real continuity of care. So, So Mark, tell us a little bit about somebody who is struggling with addiction. We know that we, not just in Kentucky, but all across the country, high levels of illicit drug use, high levels of addiction. Uh, record numbers of overdose deaths, but it, you are familiar with addiction. Tell us what are what is it that's attractive to illicit drugs, or wh- what are the steps, or what leads somebody to become addicted? Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I I think we both know what that is. Actually, yeah. um, there's a very very simple answer to it. It does get complicated though. Um, but the simple answer is is that we really just don't have that strong enough relationship with Christ um, that leads us down a path, you know, that, you know, Satan presented before Jesus, right? Here's what I've got. I'll give you all of this if you just do this. And so Jesus knew his birthright. And so he wasn't willing to throw it all away um, for the things of the world. Um, And sadly for, you know, for many of us, um, you know, scripture says Satan comes to steal, kill and destroy. And, and that's what he does. Now, 
how he does that, you know, a lot of the people that we see today, um, many of them are trauma-based um, addictions. And so uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse at a young age, um, some of them today are also less today than what it was maybe five or eight or 10 years ago um, was overprescribing by doctors, um, where doctors were just throwing opioids at, at everybody that came in. Um, and, you know, I don't know how many, I think there was one Kentucky County that had millions of prescriptions in a very small region. And so there was that aspect of it. There's also the aspect of um, uh, your environment. You know, uh, people get laid off, they get fired, um, they get divorced. They're just not able or, or capable of handling that without the grace of God in their lives. Um, and so there's multitudes of, you know, myriad of reasons why people uh, begin to use. But the bottom line is really just that undeveloped relationship with their creator. Yeah, that's a good, uh, good, good, good response. We know that's the truth. We there's a lot of pain, a lot of hurting, and people try to to mask the pain or at least numb the pain. And before they know it, they find themselves in addiction. And as a person who's involved with those who are addicted and uh, uh, trying to help the brokenness, trying to help people get uh, steer for their lives in a better way on a better path, what kind of response do you see from the church? Are, are, are churches supportive of what you're doing? I, I, I don't think, you know, this is going to hurt, and it hurts me to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, the church isn't um, geared towards discipleship today mm-hmm. um, like it needs to be. Yeah. And, you know, discipleship is a very messy ministry. Um, it, it requires that you, you know, give your shirt um, off your back, um, that maybe you give up your bread. Um, it, it, it requires something that I think the church just isn't prepared to do today. And, and addiction is even, you know, more messy discipleship than what regular discipleship is. So when we're jumping in with these people, you know, we're jumping in to gee, you know, my dad molested me, um, and, and they don't know how to, how to handle that. Yeah. I want you to tell us your story. You've got a fascinating story of how you launched Isaiah House. Uh, t- tell us briefly how, how you started it. All right. So um, I, I actually got addicted at the age of 11. Um, and so uh, a friend of mine, um, after we saved his life from drowning, he offered me a, a joint. <clears throat> and I fell in love. Um, I was raised a Catholic. I was raised a bad Catholic at that. Um, And so I had no relationship with God or with Jesus. And um, that would take me on a 27-year path. Um, So from 11 to 38, I'll be arrested roughly 50, 60 times. I'm going to overdose a couple of times. I'm going to try to commit suicide twice. I'll be married three times. Mm-hmm. sentenced to prison for six years. And uh, it was it was about March of 1999 that a guy had gotten released from North Point Prison. And he came to my place of employment and he told me about Jesus. And he did that not knowing anything about me. And he did that for 90 straight days, Richard. Wow. And he came back 
every day, every day. And there were days where I would try to run from him because I didn't want to hear what he had to say. Uh, but really, the Holy Spirit had put conviction on him to to be about this, and he just wasn't giving up. And mm-hmm. one day, uh, he said a prayer with me, and all of the, you know, all of the jail, all of the treatment centers, I'd been through 13 different short-term treatment centers, all of that changed in one instant of prayer for me. And when I got out, uh, we were actually in a car when he prayed for me. When I got out of the car, I didn't know what happened to me because I wasn't raised in, in, in a biblical church, right? And so I didn't know the, the terminology. Um, it, looking back at it, I, I got saved. That's what happened to me. Um, but um, I felt brand new for the first time in my life. All the shame, all the guilt all the condemnation, um, everything that life had, I, everything that I had allowed life to pour on me was just gone in a second. Um, it was really crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Mark, we are running out of time for this segment, but fast forward to you starting Isaiah House. I understand that you saw people who had addiction issues. They had no place to go. Some were homeless. And you opened up your home, didn't you, to to people in the Danville area? Tell us what happened. Yeah. So we would have roughly 300 people live with us over two and a half years. And you can't do that. It's against the law um, to do that. Um, And so we were fined $8,500. But it led to this, you know, I mean, God used it. God knew it was going to happen. It didn't surprise him. It was a bit of a shock to me. Um, that, that, you know, we didn't want to come together and help these people that were a little bit less fortunate. But you know what? In the end, praise God, God gets the glory and the victory. Real quick, how many, uh, what's your success rate at Isaiah House? You talked about the continuity. You talked about removing silos, your Christ-based ministry. What kind of success rate do you have? So we actually have a full-time data analyst, which is like a first for a lot of our pro- the programs in the area. And so we yeah. study this data very closely. of the clients that have come to us that had come from jail or had come to us because of the law, 87% have not reoffended with the law one year post-completion. That's That's awesome. That's the opposite of what the world offers. Yeah. Well, and it's the the recidivism rate with other programs, secular programs, is pretty high compared to that. Mark LaPalme, you are doing a good work. You just received a, a grant, federal grant, uh, significant to help expand the ministry. You serve people in over 100 of Kentucky, uh, 100 of Kentucky's 120 counties. You're doing an awesome work. How do people get in touch with you and learn more about Isaiah House or even support your ministry? How do they do that? Thank you, Richard. So um, www.isaiah-house.org is our website. Um, we're proud of our website. We've got a pretty good team that puts that together. Um, and so it's got a lot of information on there. And then 859-375-9200 is, is how to get a hold of us. And, and uh, you can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn um, if you want to message me personally about something. If somebody's struggling out there, and I'm, I'm always available. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. God bless you and you keep up the good work. God bless you. Thank you very much. 